This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. The 27 Club is a new podcast about famous musicians who died prematurely and sometimes mysteriously at the age of 27. This podcast is hosted by me, Jake Brennan, creator and host of the hit music and true crime podcast, Disgraceland. Season one features 12 episodes on the life and death of Jimi Hendrix. The 27 Club contains adult content and explicit language. You can listen to The 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Watch out for your ears. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Last time in our episode about Julius Sands' letters to Chester A. Arthur, we mentioned that when Arthur was selected as the Republican Party's vice presidential nominee in 1880, some questions came up about whether or not he had been born in the United States and consequently whether he was eligible to be the vice president at all. And some of the details of this are a little convoluted, and it's not necessarily everyday knowledge today. I think the random people in my life that I asked if they had ever heard about this had not. But at the same time, it has had a surprising amount of staying power. And after doing a little bit of research into this while doing that Julia Sand episode, I couldn't decide what to make of the whole thing. So I texted my friend Amy, who's a history teacher, And I asked her, do you have an opinion on whether Chester A. Arthur was born in the United States? She did not have an opinion. And then we talked about it for the next two hours. (laughs) And over the course of that conversation, we were both like, this needs to be a whole episode and not just a two-sentence side reference in the Julia Sand thing. So here it is. The questions about Chester A. Arthur's birth really trace back to his dad. Arthur's father, William Arthur, was born December 5th, 1796, in County Antrim, Ireland. His family had enough money for him to get an education, including pursuing a degree at Belfast College. But William wanted to practice law, and they didn't really have the money or connections that he needed to do that. So William immigrated to Canada around 1819, hoping to find more opportunities there. He settled in Quebec, not far from the United States border, and supported himself by teaching while he was still studying law. In 1821, he married an American woman named Malvina Stone from Vermont. Her family had moved to Canada. And then they had a daughter named Regina, born in Dunham, Canada, in 1822. Two years later, in 1824, the couple moved to Burlington, Vermont, and Arthur continued to teach and study law And their daughter, Jane, was then born in Burlington, Vermont, that same year. William Arthur never put those years of legal study into practice. This was during the religious revival known as the Second Great Awakening. 
Arthur had been raised Anglican, and after attending a revival meeting, he converted to Free Baptist. As that was happening, he and his wife had another daughter, Almeida, born in Jericho, Vermont, in 1826. By 1828, they were living in Waterville, Vermont, where their daughter Anne Eliza was born. Then later that year, Arthur was ordained in Waterville. From that point on, people mostly knew him as Elder Arthur. He also apparently stopped registering the births of his children with civil authorities at this time. In May of 1828, the family moved to Fairfield, Vermont, where a congregation had hired William as their preacher. In Fairfield, Elder Arthur continued to teach to help make ends meet, often with his students lodging with the family. The congregation was growing and building things like a new parsonage and a new church, but the Arthurs often struggled financially. Winters were especially hard because William was disabled due to some kind of abscess or injury to one of his legs back when he was still living in Ireland. It was harder for him to do physical work or get around in the harsh snowy weather of winter Vermont. On October 5th, 1829, William and Malvina welcomed a son, and they named him Chester after Malvina's cousin, Dr. Chester Abel, who had attended her during the birth. The baby's middle name, Alan, was after his paternal grandfather, so his full name was representing both sides of the family. In October of 1830, Elder Arthur took a second job across the Canadian border in East Stanbridge, Quebec, to try to support his still-growing family. They would ultimately go on to have eight children. He took his eldest daughter, Regina, with him. He commuted back to Fairfield to preach his Sunday sermons there. Within a year, though, the family was moving yet again. In addition to being a teacher and a preacher, William Arthur was an ardent abolitionist. Vermont had started the process of abolishing slavery back in 1777, and Black men in Vermont had been given the right to vote. But in the 1830s, the idea of abolishing slavery throughout the United States was incredibly controversial. Pro-slavery and anti-abolition riots and other violence were pretty common, including in places where slavery had already been abolished. William was really outspoken in his views against slavery, and before long, he was no longer welcome in Fairfield. The family moved repeatedly over the next few years, mostly around Vermont and New York. They would stay in a place until they were run out of town by anti-abolitionists or until church leadership decided William's activities were too much of a liability. Throughout all of this, Chester Arthur and his siblings were being taught at home. That changed when the family moved to Schenectady, New York in the summer of 1844. For the first time, Chester was enrolled in a formal school. He went to Schenectady's Lyceum and Academy, and then he started at Union College in 1845. He took up the study of law that his father had previously abandoned. Also like his father, Chester Arthur worked as a teacher to support his study of law. This included summer teaching jobs, and in 1851, a post as principal of the school where two of his sisters worked. There, he was also assigned to teach a group of particularly ill-behaved boys. He also developed romantic friendships with two other young men, Campbell Allen and James Maston. James would later marry Chester's sister, Almeida. As they got older, Chester and some of his siblings became pretty disenchanted with their father's self-righteous behavior and his almost zealous pursuit of both religion and abolition. So Chester, having the option to do so, left home. He moved to New York City in 1853. Soon he was moving in Republican political circles, and the rest of that story is in our earlier episode on his letters from Julia Sand. 
In June of 1880, Chester A. Arthur became the Republican Party's nominee for Vice President of the United States. Soon, the Arthur family's nomadic life during the 1820s and 30s, Elder Arthur's not reporting his younger children's births, and Chester Arthur's extreme secrecy with the press all combined to cause a problem. Rumors started to spread among both Democrats and the moderate Republican faction known as half-breeds. In some versions, Arthur had been born in his father's birthplace of Ireland, and in other versions, he had been born in Canada. The Ireland rumor was quickly dismissed as impossible, but that Canada rumor hung on. According to Article 2, Section 1 of the U.S. Constitution, quote, no person except a natural-born citizen or a citizen of the United States at the time of the adoption of this Constitution shall be eligible to the office of president. And according to the 12th Amendment, which took effect in 1804, quote, no person constitutionally ineligible to the office of president shall be eligible to that of vice president of the United States. The Constitution doesn't define exactly what natural-born citizen means, but it's generally defined as someone who was a citizen from the time they were born without having to go through a naturalization process. When Chester Arthur was born, it was generally agreed that free white people born in the United States were citizens from birth, although it wasn't formally part of the law until later. The law also recognized that a person might be born outside of the United States to citizen parents and still be considered a citizen from birth. But at that time, the law considered this citizenship to pass through the father and not through the mother. Arthur's father didn't become a U.S. citizen until 1843, way after he was born. So if Arthur had been born in Canada, he would not be considered a U.S. citizen, even though his mother was a citizen. And we're going to get to how all of this unfolded after we first take a little sponsor break. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. <laughs> yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. Hey guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host The Bobby Bones Show. And I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together, and we get into a room, and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app.
1880 Republican National Convention ran from June 2nd to 8th of that year, and then on June 9th, the day after it was over, the New York Times ran a profile of the party's new vice presidential nominee, which stated, quote, General Chester A. Arthur was born in Franklin County, Vermont, October 5th, 1830. On June 11th, the St. Johnsbury Caledonian of St. Johnsbury, Vermont, wrote, quote, the papers say Chester A. Arthur was born in Langsingburg, New York, 50 years ago, but his father used to live in Vermont, and some say the candidate was born in Fairfield. On June 12th, the carbon advocate of Lehighton, Pennsylvania, published an article that said he had been born in Vermont in 1831. The Abbeville Press and Banner of Abbeville, South Carolina, published an article on the 23rd that said Arthur had been born in Albany in 1831. He was born seven times in various places. <laughs> a little later in 1880, General James S. Brisbane published a biography for the campaign called From the Towpath to the White House, The Early Life and Public Career of James A. Garfield, Major General USA, the record of a wonderful career which, like that of Abraham Lincoln, by native energy and untiring industry, led this man from obscurity to the foremost position in the councils of the nation— including a sketch of the life of Honorable Chester A. Arthur. Moment of silence for these fabulous titles. <laughs> the text follows the same pattern as the title, spending more than 500 pages on Garfield's biography and 23 on Arthur's, with five of those being the text of Arthur's speech, accepting the nomination. Brisbane gives Arthur's date and place of birth as October 5th, 1830, in Fairfield, Franklin County, Vermont. So it's clear from just these examples, which are just some of the reporting around all of this, there was some confusion about exactly when and where Arthur was born. I found zero references from 1880 that said that he was born in Fairfield, Vermont on October 5th, 1829, which is what's considered correct today. By the late fall and early winter of 1880, this lack of clarity about where and when Arthur had been born had grown to include suspicion that wherever it was, it was not in the United States. An article published on December 23, 1880 in the Sacramento Daily Record Union read, quote, A lawyer of Brooklyn has been investigating in Vermont to see if Chester A. Arthur was not really born on Canadian soil and left apparently pleased with his discoveries. Old residents say there is no question of Arthur being a citizen. The Brooklyn lawyer being referenced was Arthur P. Henman, who in some accounts had been hired by the Democrats and in others was an anti-stalwart Republican. He really could have been both those things at the same time. At first, Henman believed that Arthur had been born in Ireland, but he gradually started focusing on the idea that he might really be Canadian. He traveled to the Vermont-Quebec border area to interview people about what they remembered of the Arthur family and their baby boy from 50 years before. Later on in 1884, when Arthur was pursuing a nomination for re-election, Henman published these 1880 findings in a book titled How a British Subject Became President of the United States. Without really citing any sources, Hinman alleged that after being nominated for vice president, Arthur couldn't say where he had been born. Hinman also alleged that Arthur had gone to Montreal after the Republican National Convention to see if there was any evidence of his birth in records there. 
There is no evidence for either of these assertions, although the day after the convention ended, the New York Times did publish a column called Campaign Notes, which paraphrased Roscoe Conkling as saying he might spend some time that summer fishing with Arthur in Canada. Yeah, Hinman's contention was this was not a fishing trip. It was a go-see-if-you're-found-out, and if so, cover-it-up trip. Hinman's key witness was a, quote, Mrs. Stevens, who had been a playmate and companion of Mrs. Arthur when at school. According to Hinman, Mrs. Stevens said that Chester Arthur's mother, Malvina, had given birth to her oldest boy on March 16th or 18th, 1828, at her parents' house in Dunham Flats in Quebec. Mrs. Stevens remembered that it was one day off from St. Patrick's Day, but she couldn't really remember in which direction it was one day off of St. Patrick's Day. This baby, according to her, was named William Chester Allen Arthur. Hinman went on to say that in November of 1830, Malvina Arthur had delivered another son, Chester Abel Arthur, while living in Fairfield, Vermont. Chester Abel had then died in 1831 while the family was visiting Burlington, Vermont. From there, Henman details more moves and more births for the Arthur family before arriving at the 1834 birth of William Arthur Jr. in Hinesburg, Vermont. At that time, Henman claimed the family decided to drop the William from their oldest son's name, William Chester Allen Arthur, making him just Chester Allen Arthur. Hinman connected all these dots to conclude that the man the world knew as Chester Allen Arthur, born in Vermont, was really his eldest brother, born in Quebec. So dramatic and weird. (laughs) (laughs) Not only that, Hinman contended that William Chester Allen Arthur had decided to adopt the birth date and birthplace of his deceased baby brother, Chester Abel, when he decided to run for president. There are some problems with Henman's account. It is cobbled together from a hodgepodge of interviews, many of them with people in their elder years who were recalling events and baby names from about 50 years before. A lot of these accounts really contradict each other, and while Henman cherry-picked the ones that supported his allegations when describing what he thought happened, he then included all of them in his book, whether they backed him up or not. So you can go read all of, like, the totally disparate accounts of what people thought this baby's name was and when he was born. In his explanation, so sort of the summary portion of this book, it is often not clear whose account Hinman is referring to, and in some spots he doesn't seem to have a source for what he's saying at all. Maybe wouldn't pass muster in your journalism 101 course. <laughs> no. On top of that, his whole argument rests on the idea that Malvina Arthur gave birth to a boy named William Chester Allen Arthur on either March 16th or 18th of 1828. But we know that she gave birth to a daughter, Anne Eliza Arthur, on January 1st of 1828. The only way this could have happened would be for these two children to have been fraternal twins born 11 weeks apart, or for Malvina Arthur to have had two wombs and been pregnant in both at the same time. Both of those scenarios are incredibly rare, and the first would have been virtually impossible given the state of medicine in 1828. It's more likely to happen on Grey's Anatomy than in the real world. (laughs) (laughs) Even so, though, by February of 1881, after the election but before the inauguration, papers were reporting on Hinman's speculations, sometimes mentioning him by name and other times not. 
For example, the Center Democrat of Belfont, Pennsylvania, published an article on February 3rd, 1881, that read, quote, It has been charged with great deliberation for several weeks that Chester A. Arthur, the vice president-elect, is not a native of the United States. These allegations have taken form, and affidavits have been procured by those investigating the matter, which go on to prove conclusively that Mr. Arthur was born in Canada. Also on the 3rd, the Western Sentinel of Winston-Salem, North Carolina, published this statement. Quote, the latest sensation now is that Chester A. Arthur is not eligible to the position of vice president to which he has been elected, and the probability that W.H. English will yet be vice president. Six days later in the Clearfield Republican of Clearfield, Pennsylvania, quote, where was he born is now agitating the public mind. The vice president-elect Chester A. Arthur claims that he was born in the state of Vermont, but a little investigation seems to show that he was born in Canada and therefore is not eligible. It is queer that a sensible man cannot tell where he was born. And on February 23rd in the Indiana State Sentinel, quote, it seems to be impossible to find out just where Chester A. Arthur, vice president-elect, was born. Arthur does not know. He was not born where nor when he asserts he was born. He has no proofs of his nativity, but the Senate Committee on Privileges and Elections have come to the conclusion that he was born in three towns and all within the United States. That will do. So I did not actually find evidence that the Senate Committee on Privileges and Elections had come to that conclusion at all. And the National Republican called the report that the committee was looking into it an idiotic lie. Also, to be clear, these newspapers all had their own political slants, and some of them had initially been started to support a specific candidate or a specific party. So none of this should be interpreted as an impartial account of anything I did for a while go on this rabbit hole of like trying to trace the political leanings of the editors of all of these papers. And then I was like, this is like 15 different papers we're referring to. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to take me a master's thesis. And this is a 30 minute podcast. As an aside, am I the only one that doesn't think it would be that weird to not know where you're born? Oh, no, I think that's totally Like, normal. one, you don't remember. <laughs> right. And two, his family was so nomadic. Yeah. They might not even remember with any sort of clarity or consistency. Yeah, I I totally know where my where I was born because my parents told me specifically and we lived like near enough to the hospital I was born in that we would go past it and my mom would be like, that's where you were born. But Well, and it was a recorded birth as well, right? right. Yeah. I have a birth certificate. Um yeah. but yeah, these were all babies who were mostly being born at home or at a relative's house, like <laughs> in families that were moving around a whole lot. And when babies weren't viewed with quite the same... Uh, there was not the level of preciousness, like, yeah, and celebration so that we many, have now. Yeah, so many ma- babies died when s- they were really young that, like, sometimes people didn't even name their babies until later. Like, it was not nearly as documented as is now. So yeah, the fact that there was uncertainty is not really... Un- strange. No, I don't think so either. Uh, James Garfield was inaugurated as president on March 4th, 1881. And at that point, the chatter about where Arthur was born seems to have quieted down, at least as far as what was being printed in newspapers. But after Garfield was shot by Charles J. Guiteau, the question took on a renewed urgency. And we're going to talk more about that after we have another little sponsor break. 
Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Laura Wasser. You may know me best as a divorce attorney and the person who created the online divorce service, It's Over Easy. Now we're inviting you to listen to my new podcast, All's Fair with Laura Wasser. After practicing family law for over 20 years, I have seen firsthand how miscommunication and unrealistic expectations can destroy relationships. I'm here to present some new options, which include educating, enlightening, empowering, and entertaining you with proven methods to navigate even the toughest of relationships. Every Tuesday, we drop a fresh episode. I have a lot to say, and you'll also get to hear from some of my friends, top legal, financial, and mental health professionals, celebrities, and everyday people, all of whom have something to share about how they navigate their own relationships. Listen to All's Fair with Laura Wasser, that's me, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. President Garfield survived for weeks after being shot in March of 1881, and as his death seemed more and more likely, people once again started raising questions about his vice president and whether he was eligible to the presidency. On September 8, 1881, the National Republican of Washington, D.C. published this exchange as a letter to the editor. Quote, To the editor of The Republican, will you please inform me where General Chester A. Arthur was born? C.J. Lemon. The answer, quote, General Arthur was born in Fairfield, Franklin County, Vermont, on October 5th, 1830. There are some persons who do aver that he was born in Canada, but they do not know what they are talking about. (laughs) Surprisingly, uh, the Republicans' definitive statement did not settle this issue. (laughs) They do not know what they are talking about. I love that. Uh, Garfield died on September 19th, 1881. On September 20th, the New York Herald printed a report written before his death, which definitively stated that Arthur was born in Fairfield, Vermont. It based this conclusion on an interview with an anonymous source who was described as an intimate friend. This friend said the whole story of a foreign birth came about because Arthur's old neighbors, quote, assumed too much when hearing that Chester Arthur had been named for Dr. Chester Abel. The Herald's reporter interviewed A.P. Hinman and recapped his version of events as well. The Herald also interviewed New York lawyer and former U.S. District Attorney George Bliss, who was a colleague of Arthur's, who said in part, quote, I can only say that the whole thing is the most errant nonsense. 
I might as well have been asked whether Cicero was a citizen. The question of the American citizenship of Mr. Arthur is so absurd that it would be a waste to say anything about it. The Herald's report was picked up and republished in other newspapers, including the Memphis Daily Appeal. On September 21st, the New York Sun published the findings of its own investigation into where Arthur had been born. The Sun's report ran under the headline, General Arthur's Birthplace, It is Near the Canada Line on the Vermont Side. It began, quote, The Sun has received lately many letters of inquiry as to the birthplace of Chester Allen Arthur, as well as other letters professing doubt of General Arthur's citizenship, some of them alleging that he was born in the neighborhood of Dunham, Canada, and therefore not eligible to the vice presidency. To settle that question definitely, a reporter for The Sun visited Fairfield, Franklin County, Vermont, which has generally been regarded as Mr. Arthur's birthplace. The place in Canada where it has been alleged that he was born was also visited. If you're thinking right now, hey, Tracy and Holly, is that the same New York Sun that published the Great Moon Hoax and the Yes, Virginia letter? Yes, it is. Sure sure thing. (laughs) Uh, It also seems to have, at least in the, like, the hodgepodge of articles from from this particular year, because its political leanings shifted over time, Uh, it really seems to be more critical of Republicans than Democrats in 1881. So, like Arthur Hinman, this Sun reporter had gone to the general area where Arthur had been born and had tried to find formal documentation about when and where that happened. But this reporter did not find anything conclusive. The church where Elder Arthur had been preaching at the time in Fairfield was no longer standing, and the greater Free Baptist organization had really dwindled. It no longer had any records. So the only record that he found of the Arthurs in Dunham, Canada, which is where people were alleging Chester Arthur had been born, was a record of the birth of William Arthur's eldest daughter. From there, the reporter interviewed locals who were between the ages of 60 and 87. The article contains such testimonies as, well, I reckon I recollect Elder Arthur. He came here to preach when they were building the new meeting house. There was a kind of a fish-shaped vein with 1828 painted on it. It was painted so bad that the feller as painted it was ashamed of it. (laughs) Uh, I like how this uh, local person from Vermont is written as though he talked like a cowhand in yeah. Texas. <laughs> yeah. Um, so those that quote was purportedly the words of Leonard D. Greer, who also remembered the Arthurs and specifically remembered that Dr. Chester Abel had delivered their son. Greer was really certain that they had named this baby Chester Abel after the doctor. Other people that were interviewed around Fairfield had the same recollection, and that included Dr. Abel's brother, Calvin. The doctor himself, by this point, had passed on. Calvin answered a question about this baby's name with, quote, well, I guess having been named after my brother, it's Chester Abel Arthur. The overall consensus of the people interviewed in Fairfield was that the Arthurs had a son while living there, that they named him Chester Abel after the doctor who delivered him, and that he was the same person as the Chester Arthur who had been elected vice president, although several people who thought about it were surprised his middle name was given as Alan rather than Abel. Other people had given that no thought whatsoever. (laughs) The Sun's reporter, though, also talked to some people who maintained that this was not the same person. 
Their argument was that Chester Abel Arthur had died in Burlington, Vermont, while still a baby, and that Elder Arthur had given his body to doctors, quote, to be dissected for scientific purposes. Then while Elder Arthur was working in East Stanbridge, according to this account, his wife and the rest of the children were living with her parents in Meg's Corners, Canada. And then while there... These people alleged she had another baby, and this other baby is the one who became president, taking his brother's identity to do it. So it's really similar to the story that Hinman had reported about Arthur taking a deceased baby brother's name, but in this case, it was an older brother and not a younger brother. The residents of East Stanbridge, Quebec, on the other hand, remembered things differently. 70-year-old Lyndall Corey reported that Elder Arthur had come to town with his daughter Regina in the autumn of 1830 and taught there for 18 months. Neither Corey nor anyone else interviewed in East Stanbridge recalled the rest of the family being present. Corey had heard this rumor about donating a baby's body to doctors, but didn't have any recollection of a baby being born to the Arthurs in East Stanbridge or of any of the Arthurs living there besides Elder Arthur and his daughter Regina. So, as had happened with Hinman's report, the Sun got a whole lot of contradictory accounts from locals. And again, these were people being asked about a baby name from 50 years before. (laughs) The Sun, however, drew the opposite conclusion in its report to what Hinman did, citing an anonymous gentleman, quote, intimately connected with the president's life and family. This anonymous source said that Arthur was named after both Dr. Chester Abel and his own paternal grandfather. The Sun reported that this unnamed source had personally seen the Arthur family Bible and that the entry for Chester's birth read Chester Allen Arthur, born in Fairfield, Franklin County, Vermont, October 5th, 1830. Speculation continued in the months that followed, and as we noted earlier, Hinman published his book when Arthur was seeking re-election in 1884. But when Arthur didn't earn the Republican nomination for president, the question faded away, and then he died in 1886. Arthur never directly addressed this controversy, but according to an article published in the New York Times on February 12, 1881, he did give a speech at a celebratory dinner at Delmonico's in New York City. About 200 people were there, including politicians and high-profile supporters, In his speech, Arthur said, quote, I don't think we had better go into the minute secrets of the campaign so far as I know them because I see reporters present who are taking it all down. And while there is no harm in talking about some things after the election is over, you cannot tell what they may make of it because the inauguration has not yet taken place. And while I don't mean to say anything about my birthplace, whether it was in Canada or elsewhere, still, if I should get to going about the secrets of the campaign, there is no saying what I might say to make trouble between now and the 4th of March. So after all of that, when and where was Chester A. Arthur born? We actually have more information on that than you might think from the quality of all of those 19th century reports. Yeah, there's more to go on than oral testimony from people living 50 years later. Not that oral testimony is without value, but seriously, who really remembers the middle name of the baby that was born in your neighborhood to a family that lived there for a couple of years 50 years before? I I imagine there are uh, uh, people here and there that might... Uh But overall, I would not put a whole lot of stock in those accounts, no. No. So, three different members of the Arthur family compiled genealogies. All of them started decades before Chester became a vice presidential nominee. William Arthur Sr. started compiling one about the time he converted to Free Baptist. 
Chester Arthur compiled one in 1859, and Chester's sister, Malvina Arthur Hainsworth, wrote one in her diary. All three of them give Chester's date of birth as October 5th, 1829. We also have two different Arthur family Bibles. One belonged to William Arthur Sr. and the other to Chester Arthur. Both of those list his birthplace and date as October 5th, 1829 in Fairfield, Vermont. If you're not familiar with the tradition of keeping a family Bible, these are Bibles that are passed down through families that have designated pages for keeping family records. Family members write down important dates like births, baptisms, and marriages on these pages. And that might seem like an informal document, but family Bibles are or have been used to substantiate people's births for things like school enrollment, driver's licenses, and even passports. Yeah, you can't really just show up at the passport office with your family Bible and get a passport, but it's like part of the substantiating documentation in a lot of contexts. And then we also have census records. The Arthur family was enumerated in the 1850 census on August 8th of 1850. Chester Arthur is listed as a student born in Vermont, age 20. Since they were counted in August and he was born in October, that would put his birth year at 1829. Arthur was counted in the 1860 census on July 30th, and he's listed as 30 years old and born in Vermont. In the 1870 census, he was counted in December after his birthday, and in that year's records, his age is listed as 41, which follows the same mathematical pattern, but his birthplace is listed as a pair of ditto marks, like same as the line above, but the line above is the last entry from another household. That person was born in New York, That discrepancy is a mystery. In our theme of bad uses for time machines, I would go back in time and ask that census taker, hey, what's up with this? (laughs) Is this an error? Like, what happened? And they would say, oh, I don't know. I was tired. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. (laughs) And then there's the 1880 census taken in June, which lists Arthur's place of birth as Vermont and his age as 49. Following the pattern of all this other documentation, it really should be 50. So it seems as though between 1870 and 1880, when Arthur was between the ages of 41 and 50, he maybe started fudging his age by a year. Thomas C. Reeves chalked it up to, quote, simple vanity, calling Arthur, quote, one of the most vainglorious men of the Gilded Age. And the fact that he was lying about his age, uh, apparently intentionally, like that year is even on his tombstone, Uh, made people sort of go, well, what else was he lying about? If he was lying about when he was born, was he lying about where? Maybe his weight. (laughs) (laughs) Like we said at the top of the show, the story that Arthur was really Canadian has kind of stuck around. Canada's History Magazine published an article on this subject in 2000. And at that time, the magazine was called The Beaver, This article kicks off with, quote, presidents of the United States must be born on U.S. soil, so says the American Constitution. But evidence suggests that Chester Arthur, the 21st president, was born in a foreign land. Canada, perhaps? Shh, don't tell the Americans. Later on, this article says, quote, Chester Arthur was most likely a citizen of Lower Canada, a British subject born in Dunham Flats, Quebec, near the Vermont border. So among other things, this article kind of misrepresents what natural-born citizen really means. And at least in the online version, it does not cite any sources for where its information came from. But it does seem like a lot of it is from A.P. Hedman's How a British Subject Became President of the United States, which we noted lots of 
problems with earlier in the episode. CBS Sunday Morning produced a segment in 2012 that takes more of a both-sides approach, interviewing a museum curator in Quebec who says she's pretty convinced he was born in Canada, along with Fairfield, Vermont locals who say he was not. They also talked to John Dumville, Vermont's historic sites operations chief, who says of the Canadian question, there is a chance, but I doubt it. This debate has also come up over the last decade or so in the context of Ted Cruz's eligibility for the presidency because he was born in Canada, as well as the birther conspiracy theory about President Barack Obama's citizenship. For all three of these men, these questions were definitely attempts to discredit them and suggest that they were not fit for office. But in a lot of other ways, these controversies don't really compare because... Ted Cruz and Barack Obama both released their birth certificates showing where they had been born. Arthur, on the other hand, was not at all forthcoming. He released no documentation of where he had been born. And this was really totally in line with how secretive he always was with the press about everything. And really, who knows whether if he had brought out his family Bible and was like, right here it says, uh, whether people would have moved on to insisting that that family Bible was fake. Really, it's not impossible that Chester A. Arthur's mother visited her parents or his father in Canada while she was pregnant with him and gave birth to him there. But there's no evidence whatsoever that Arthur assumed the identity of a deceased brother, and there are multiple family and census records listing his birthplace as Vermont. Most of them date back to before the Civil War, long before Arthur became the vice presidential nominee, long before he had any reason to prove that he was a natural-born citizen. Yeah, why would he have started lying about it in 1850? We call that the long con. (laughs) The super long con, especially because he personally might not have been the person talking to the census taker that day, right? Right. Uh, So anyway, that is the kooky story of Chester A. Arthur. Uh, When The first little reference to it that I read was like, and then people ask whether he was born in Canada. And I said, okay, that's weird. And then I got to the part of people saying he had assumed the identity of a dead baby brother. And I was like, okay, now this is just strange. We are going to talk about it a little more. Yeah. Do you have listener mail to talk about? I do. It's from Megan. Uh, And I wanted to read this because it's just funny to me. Megan, first of all, has the subject line in the email of, you're in luck, (laughs) U-R-I-N-E. And it says, Dear Tracy and Holly, I hope that pun didn't send this note straight to your spam folder. I just wanted to write a quick note to say thank you for your recent episode on Hennig and Phosphorus. I was having a very bad day, and I was cracking up listening to this episode. I felt like I could hear you guys trying so hard not to laugh, and that made me laugh harder, so thanks for that. It is right up there in my fave episodes with Hessians, Marjorie Kemp, and the boy Jones. Also, Holly, I know you don't like musicals, but I really think you should check out the music for the show You're in Town. I was thinking about it the whole time you were talking about pea barrels. I know nothing about this show, just for the record. (laughs) FYI, for clarification, I feel like I am forever defending this. I don't mind musicals. I don't want to watch them because I don't like to watch people's. I love music. I don't mm-hmm. want to watch people singing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is sort of like how I said something in an episode one time about not enjoying Sondheim, and we got a number of emails explaining to me how, how like, gifted and brilliant Sondheim was. And I was like, I'm not arguing 
the mastery of Sondheim. I'm talking about my personal enjoyment listening to it. Right. Anyway, uh, Megan goes on to thank us and says that she runs on Mondays and Wednesdays because she has the show to listen to on those days. Thank you so much, Megan, for sending this note. It made me laugh. Just now made Holly laugh. I'm really excited when we get to do episodes that make people laugh sometimes because not all of them do. Nope. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we are at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And then we're all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. You can come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, where you will find show notes of all the episodes that Holly and I have worked on together. And the show notes for today include links to scans of a whole lot of 19th century newspapers. You can also find a searchable archive of all our episodes ever. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you get podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, it's Laura Wasser, host of the All's Fair podcast on iHeartRadio. I'm a family law attorney, which is really a euphemism for a divorce attorney, and I've been practicing for over 20 years. I've learned some very interesting things along the way, and I can tell you that when dealing with matters of the heart, rules seldom apply. With advice and anecdotes from many of my friends, some of whom may be celebrities, as well as the best legal, financial, and mental health professionals in the country, our goal is to educate, enlighten, empower, and entertain you on the way to a better understanding of how relationships work. iHeartRadio is number one for podcasts, but don't take our word for it. Find All's Fair with Laura Wasser on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. The richest, most powerful place on earth. A fiction podcast. Duman Bay. On an epic scale. Power is everything. Power gives everything. We have to get away from this place. Tuman Bay is our destiny. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. Be sharp and die! Listen to all episodes of Tuman Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.